Welcome back, everybody. This is Eric and Matt, and this is Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit, your beacon of freedom and the American way of life. Tune in every Friday for a new episode as we dive into the world of liberty and what makes our country great. Welcome back, everybody. This is Eric and Matt here with Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit, and I hope everybody is having a wonderful week. In today's episode, we are going to be diving into the war in the Ukraine. You know, obviously, there's a lot going on. We are going to talk more of a military analysis of what is going on, and we're going to talk about tactics, about weaponry, um, you know, about troop movements. We're going to really get into the military analysis of this, and we're going to try to steer clear of the geopolitical ramifications of this and stick straight to facts and details and maybe provide a little bit of insight as to what we think could happen. And this is all, of course, merely speculation and opinion. So I want that to uh, be quite clear here that anytime there's a war, there's always a information campaign and a propaganda campaign that is, uh, you know, put forth by both sides of the conflict. So uh, we don't want to spout anything as fact uh, or false. Uh, we're simply trying to provide some perspective and some analysis. So with that being said... I would like to say a big thank you to today's supporter of this episode is Ballistic Inc. Go over and pick yourself up a snazzy t-shirt. We've got some amazing things on the website. Uh, if you want to support the podcast or the YouTube channel here directly, that's one way you can certainly do so. Uh, check us out. We've got tons of great t-shirts, hats, beanies, all sorts of different merch. Also, uh, we do sell body armor and other cool things through the site. So anything you purchase through Ballistic Inc., you can support your favorite content creators and support the podcast in the same uh, stroke of your pen or your mouse uh, pad or keyboard or whatever as you go. So That's right. Uh, big thank you to those of you who support Ballistic Inc. And without further ado, we're going to get into today's subject. So uh, how have things been going, Matt? Quick check-in extremely busy, Eric. Um, and I'm glad we made enough time to get in here and, and cut an episode. I know we've both been going full steam ahead. And this uh, this episode is near and dear to both of our hearts because it's, you know, it's something that we've given enough time to marinate on. So, you know, it's been a, you know, roughly two weeks. Um, you know, we've, we've got enough information from both sides to be able to, to decipher what's really going on. Um, you know, there's a lot of propaganda out there from both sides. Um, and I think this is a great opportunity to kind of, um, we can, t- we can talk about the empathetic or the emotional part of it, you know, later in the podcast, but the military aspect of it, just what's going on currently, the, the troop movements, the, the insurgent type warfare that's going on. Um, you know, we happen to have a lot of experience and, you know, there's lots of, um, there's lots of experience that you hear from like guys that are like in ODAs or special forces guys, SEALs that can give you a lot of input on that type of warfare. But what we're seeing now is the opposite of that. We're seeing, you know, militia type warfare, you know, insurgent type warfare, um, more on your classic style of guerrilla warfare versus like, you know, dry holes or hitting hard and fast and quick in the night. This is more like gritty, like you're slugging it out, man. And that's what I've seen so far is just people picking up arms and just willing to slug it out with, with, you know, a a more superior foe. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Russia is a superior adversary. They almost triple uh, you know, they have triple the amount of ground forces, equipment, tanks, jets. So, you know, it, it hasn't been seen in a long time to see like, to yes. you know, to have that, you know, asymmetrical warfare, like two ground forces kind of going at it. So this it, is a very unique war. Yeah. So th- this is really the first very, very modern conflict, you know, between two major powers since World War II. And many are calling this, uh, European versus, let's just say, the East or, you know, towards, you know, Russia, right? The bear, essentially. So this is really the first conflict of its time since World War II. So there's a lot going on here. When you're talking artillery and tanks and drone strikes and this total warfare, we're talking scorched earth. Now, this is not a propaganda point or or, or some talking point that's trying to go towards either side, but it is quite clear that Russia is engaged in 
some pretty wide-ranging scorched earth policy when it comes to how they are fighting this war. I mean, we see civilian casualties are mounting, and uh, the toll that this is taking on the civilian populace is crazy. I mean, you're talking millions of people that have been displaced, um, well over $115 billion in damage has been done to infrastructure and property and just loss of life and limb. Now, um, there's a lot of things that go into this discussion, and again, without you know, we have to be careful to not, you know, say something is fact or not. Uh, we're trying to really just look at this based on what we can observe and what we see. Uh, and you're right, okay, that the counterinsurgency, if you will, that you that Ukrainians are, um, you know, fighting against a greater foe. Now, it is quick to to be able to say, yes, okay, Russia is numerically uh, superior and they have much more technology and they have much more landmass. And of course, they, in terms of the front, when we look at the map, the fronts that they are fighting on are essentially three or four major fronts with another fifth front opening up in the West. There's been attacks in the West, right, as well towards the Polish border. So they're fighting a multi front war. And they're spreading their troops out pretty thin to do that. Very thin. And because of the armor they're bringing into the country, they are having to stick to improved and major highways and roads. As we see, every time they leave a major hardball, they're getting stuck in the mud and all. Mm -hmm. So I think Russia is quickly seeing that armor, whereby, yes, it's helpful in certain situations, armor can also be a detriment if you don't have uh, the infantry to back up your armor. You know, much of your armor and your tanks and your BMPs and stuff have to be supported by infantry mm -hmm. because what, what Russia is learning the hard way, Matt, what are they learning, right? Yeah, I mean, they're learning that it's not as easy as America makes it look. That's what they're seeing. But I would agree with you. I think that, you know, and that brings up a good point. You would think that you can roll in there with a lot of armor or a lot of heavy equipment and a lot of, you know, vehicles. But even when we were in Iraq, we saw that the tanks weren't really utilized the same way that they were previously in, in previous warfare coming out of, say, like, even with Vietnam, it was very similar. You didn't really have those tank-on-tank you know, altercations. Um, and the same thing with Iraq. It, in Iraq, the tanks were used as like mobile guard posts. They would post up, they would hold TCPs, um, they would support... Almost a deterrent. Yeah, and they would support uh, infantry movement. Now, d a deterrent, absolutely. You roll up on a power station to take a power station and you see four or five Abrams tanks kind of leading that in. And yeah, and a couple of hundred and infantry. Then, and then you see the, the infantry dudes kind of just like hunkered down walking behind them. Those dudes are beating feet, man. They're getting out of there because those tanks are going to roll through. But it's a, it's a natural deterrent. What you're seeing in Ukraine is, like you mentioned, it's a very large landmass. And when you look at the maps that, you know, when you look at the news and they're showing all these entry points from where Russia is coming in, um, you would think, well, they have 900,000 troops. Why don't they just run in there and take this country in a matter of a few days? God knows they could do it with that much power. But you're also leaving yourself exposed. So if you look at where they're coming in, they're coming in at like Odessa near the south. They're coming in, you know, through Chernobyl. They're coming in through these certain points and they just they don't have enough troops to invade at 100 percent and fend off a counteroffensive. That's because it does no good to rush in and try to take Kiev. But then you lose the southern part of your country because all they're doing is coming in through the bottom yeah. and you're coming into the top they're coming in through the bottom and you take their country they're taking yours well i am going to speculate on what i feel russia's future tactics are going to involve but first i think it's important to mention right that numbers don't always necessarily win wars matt all mm -hmm. right look at the spartans all right king leonidas and thermopylae with mm -hmm. the persians as i mean it's a famous battle obviously you know okay the movie 300 you know yes that's hollywood's version but at its core uh, what you can point to is it wasn't just 300 men. It was, it was more than that, but... It was 300 Spartans. A very limited <laughs> amount of soldiers holding yeah. a very, very distinctive piece of ground, right? Like the hot gates being this really, you know, small path that you can't get a lot of troops through. So militarily, numbers do not always win wars. Tactics do. And that's mm -hmm. what the, the Battle of Thermopylae teaches us, right? In, in that situation, right, that that Leonidas understood the ground, understood the land, knew how to utilize the land and the terrain to his tactical advantage. The Ukrainians are no different, right? They know their land, 
Mm-hmm. They know every little go-between. They know their cities well. And this isn't just some insurgency like Iraq where you've got you know guys with RPG-7s and outdated Soviet technology going around and, and harassing troops. Now, granted, yes, we lost many brave men and women in Iraq and Afghanistan, and we can't downplay the fact that, yes, a determined uh, insurgency is certainly going to pose a very distinctive threat to any invader, right? However... This is not the war in Iraq, okay? This is very different um, already. Now, of course, the numbers of soldiers that have been lost on both sides of this conflict, we can't rely on those numbers. But but the Ukrainians are exacting some very distinctive losses against the, the, uh, the Russians. And they are armed with much more modern uh, anti-tank weapons. And they're very motivated. And when you combine that with the knowledge of the terrain, and also they are employing... So Russia is employing some very deadly tactics that they've already learned the lesson the hard way, and the Ukrainians know that and are using that to their advantage. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But, I mean, these guys have got in-laws, which are the newest laws. Mm -hmm. You know, they're using javelins. They're using tow missiles. They're using drones that are dropping bombs and things like that. They're using using drones for reconnaissance. They're using drones to, you know, detect and, and utilize uh, you know, certain troop movements and know what they're doing. They're using Molotov cocktails. They're using any variety of different anti-tank weaponry that they can get sent, all the way from older RPG-7s and other disposable launchers all the way up to the most modern tech. So mm-hmm. this already on its surface level, Matt, is a different kind of thing that's going on. And we start seeing that that armor for the Russians is becoming quite a liability more than it is, uh, you know, helping their actual <laughs> military cause. I, I agree. I think they put a lot of uh, they they put a lot of credence into their armor, and now they're realizing. And a lot of it's older armor too. But I mean, they just—it's not the same. It's not we the same type of warfare. Yeah. Well, I would like to talk real quick about the anti-tank weapons they're using. So, like the N laws, the AT fours, um, and I mean, really the the javelin. The javelin is only a portion of that weapon system. The the real the actual part of that weapon system that makes the biggest difference is the the clue, the CLU, the command launch unit. It's the part, if you guys aren't familiar with the javelin, the javelin is just like the ordinance. That's just the part that comes out. But the part that you put the ordinance onto that you actually hold is a, a command launch unit. And that's what allows you to see and guide that rocket. And you can utilize that part of the, the system without the ordinance attached. So even though you launch the ordinance, you can take that with you and it has a it has thermal imaging. Like it is sick. Like it is it's a an advanced yeah, piece of it's gear. it's a really real I mean they they value the clue more than the actual ordinance. Like if, if the enemy in Iraq had yes. access to those, we would probably not be alive. Yeah, no. I mean, be, let's just be honest. Be, we, we would we would not have survived that would, war. You would get wrecked. Because, yes, I mean, you can see so far with that thermal imaging, and it's so crisp. I mean, we were sitting there playing around with it, like zooming in on like animals. You're like, holy crap, you can see yeah. everything. Um, and we were, you could use it. We, we had, when we use it to spot. So we're like up in the tower, we're looking at it, and we're like, all right, well, at nighttime, you can see everything with the clue. You can't see anything with like nods because with nods, you can only see so far. Right. But that is the game changer. And that yeah. really allows you to, you know, see things that you know, you wouldn't normally be able to see. Um, N-laws are great. AT4s are great. Single use. Well, I think the N-laws are reloadable. The A- javelin's really the king. Uh, javelin. I mean, God. And it's so powerful, man. Like it, it, is. it will just absolutely blow the doors off you. <laughs> it is. It's a powerful weapon. So the, the Ukrainians have access to tech mm-hmm. that, let's just say, in past insurgencies. All right. We look at Mogadishu, um, you know. You guys are familiar with the movie Black Hawk Down. You know the story in Mogadishu. You know the Black Hawk helicopters getting shot down with RPG-7s, which by today's modern anti-armor, anti-tank, anti-aircraft, you know, uh, man-portable weaponry is by today's standards a pretty crude weapon, but that was in the 90s, right? Um, but when you look at that type of insurgency, this is a very different type of thing, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, these are... This is a group of people. Now, I don't want to get into the geopolitical argument here, but this is, the Ukrainians are a group of people that probably think of themselves more as Europeans than they do as Russians. I mean, that's why they're their own country and they're not Russian. But we're not going to get into that. But I would like to talk about some of the mistakes that Russia has made in the past that I feel 
judging, I'm looking at the map and I'm looking at the movements, I'm looking at where they're coming in. It's like, to a degree, maybe they haven't learned some of the lessons of the past. And we go back to 1939, all right, the Winter War of 39 uh, between Russia and Finland. All right, Russia invades Finland. All right, so ultimately, now without going into a giant expose and, and a lot of details about the Winter War of 39 and the other wars that ensued, the Continuum War and things like that, yes, Finland did lose some territory to Russia, but as one Russian general famously said, only enough territory to bury all the dead that lost. Yeah, they got wrecked. They, they got, got completely wrecked, wrecked by <laughs> yeah. the Finns. Well, how did they get wrecked by the Finns? The Russians had them outnumbered. Okay, the, Ru- the Russians had a far numerically superior force, better equipped, more tanks, more of everything, right? Better air superiority. Finland only owned 32 tanks, mm-hmm. right? So how in the world did Finland beat Russia? They had like six aircraft or something well, like that. It wasn't so a lot. Finland has all these logging roads that these tanks were having to come down to attack Finland. So what they would do is they would engage in this very non-traditional type of warfare, asymmetric style of warfare, where they would take out the front of the column, the back of the column, and all of a sudden, where were these tanks going to go? Mm-hmm. They can't turn around. There's big old trees in the way that they can't. You, everybody thinks that a tree can just push a t- or a tank can push a tree over and all this sort of stuff. Yes, they can to some degree, but they do require to, to kind of have some movement, though, mm-hmm. right? To going from sitting still to now you're trying to take out a tree that's 40 feet from your tank. It may not necessarily be an easy thing, and then you're doing it in the the fog of combat, and there's people shooting at you. So it, it, the Finns caused utter chaos to the Russians when they were attacking. They were bringing their armor in. They would take out the front and rear of the column, and all of a sudden now you're just sitting ducks. And, of course, they would come in with Molotov cocktails and explosives and whatever and take out the Russian column. So the Russians were really getting some heavy losses from the Finns during the war. And you would think, okay, well, maybe we learned our lesson. Let's not do that again, right? What do we see? All right, the road to Kiev. All right, now I can understand where the Russians are coming from, right? All right, we look at this map. I'm going to turn over here. We can see a little mm-hmm. better. All right, we can see where the troops are coming in. Now, what are they doing? They're sticking to the hard balls. Yep. All right, they're staying on the hard balls because that's the only place the armor can go without getting stuck because you got to think the time of year right there, there's lots of moisture and all these fields. You know, like There's a lot of agriculture in, in Ukraine. So with this agriculture, their armor gets stuck if they just go right off the road. I mean, you've seen tons of images of all of this Russian armor stuck in the mud because if they get off that ball, that hard ball, they're going to get stuck. The Ukrainians know this, right? They know this, so they are able to actually, you know, really engage in some very asymmetrical warfare and take advantage of the fact that the Russians are literally eating out of the hand of the playbook that made them lose in 39. I mean, that's that's exactly what happened during Operation Market Garden with the hedgerows. They didn't understand you know, the terrain when they were going and they were jumping in and they brought in armor support and the armor support wasn't able to get past all of the hedgerows that were in that area. And the, basically the tanks were just sitting there. Like they weren't able to help the troops at all. And it seems like they're making the same America, the U S army. One of the first things that we learn as, as an infantry unit is what we call met TC, which is mission, enemy, time, terrain, and considerations. So before you even plan an operation, you're utilizing met TC to, to plan that operation. So what's the mission? Who are the enemy? What time, what's the time hack? What time do we have to get there? What time do we have to finish? What's the time on target? You know, what, can, what are the considerations? What resistance can we expect? Right. How so, many of them are there? Correct. And it just seems what like... What are our losses going to be? Like, you these have to guys aren't considering that. anything. They're just going in. Like, you're hearing about paratrooper units jumping in and just getting obliterated. I'm like, this is this is insane. Like, this is ridiculous. And it really puts, puts it in a perspective that I think America takes... Like, at least military veterans, like GWAT veterans, I'm going to say, take it... Take take it for granted when they see this kind of stuff because we're not used to it. We've been we've been at war for twenty years, so when we see these types of losses, Eric, this is unfathomable to us to like to drop in an airborne unit and like lose the entire unit like that. That's insane. I would never I would never imagine that. I think it does go without saying though that 
we won't really know what the real losses on each side are and when they occurred until this whole thing is over and resolved. So there is a lot of disinformation, and that's Mm -hmm. probably important to kind of talk about a little bit because every war, no matter who is fighting the war, involves a propaganda campaign because in order to keep troop morale high, the last thing you ever want to do is make it look like your side isn't doing well. You always want to you know, over glorify the other side's losses and you want to undermine the losses that you are forced to confront and report, such as, all right, a a few days ago, unfortunately, a hospital, a maternity hospital was blown up in the Ukraine. Now, the Ukrainian government can't just say, well, it didn't happen. They have to acknowledge it. So, all right, the way the propaganda machine works, you know this, Mm -hmm. we know this because it's just reality. Well, all right, it's a non-military target, there's women and children, and that's a terrible situation. So, of course, you have to to show these terrible images of these, you know, like one, one I saw the other day was a baby wrapped in a blanket, and the doctor was like, you know, on the verge of tears, and it's like, of course, it's terrible to lose your child, and that drives the point home and makes the invaders feel terrible because they killed a child. It makes the defenders feel like their cause is obviously super honorable because you're not going to sit there and let the Russians drop a bomb and kill babies, are you? So whereby the West, us, and and them, the way that we would say, oh, well, that's propaganda. You're, you're buying into the propaganda. Are you really, though? Because, I mean, at the end of the day, d- does anyone, no matter who they are, want to see a hospital or a school get blown up or a civilian target get blown up or attacked? No one wants to see civilians get hurt. But see, it's all a difference in the doctrine. It's a, a, a level of loss that the Russians are willing to exact. They're willing to be painted with an ugly brush of being terrible people and killing civilians as long as they win the war. So it's important to remember that this Soviet tactic that they're employing, this encirclement that they're doing, is a classic Soviet tactic. They have not improved their tactics since the 40s. And if, mm-hmm. and we also know that in warfare, the Soviets completely do not care or have very little regard for the civilian populace as lo- and for the loss of their very own soldiers I was just as about to long mention that. as yeah. they win the war. So you have to remember the type of person you're fighting and what their ideologies are. Yeah, and I was going to mention that. I'm glad you brought that up because if you start thinking about stuff like Stalingrad, how it turned into like, hey, there's not enough weapons for everybody. So one man holds, you know, the ammo. The first man gets the rifle. When the first man dies, you pick up the rifle. Like that. And like when you have that much disregard for your own fighting force, imagine the disregard you have for your civilian population. Now multiply that by 100 when it's not your civilian population. It's the enemy. When it's the quote, air quote, enemy civilians. So now you can multiply that and say they have zero regard for any civilian casualties. Now, you know, I, I, I look at it like I have to point out the fact that, yes, there's propaganda on both sides. Is there a possibility that that hospital could have been a false flag like it could have been hey look they're bombing our hospitals we need help so how much of this is hey america come help us help us even more than you're already helping us don't just give us javelin missiles and you know weapons and stuff we want you we want your people to come into our country and help us i'm i don't I'm I'm not going to kick any cans down the road. I am not about that. I think they need to they need to fight their own fight. America, you know, fought for our independence. We fought in five major wars up until now, one of them being 20 years. Um, you know, we just got out of a war. Let, and on top of that, they're bordered by tons of allies. So they have, let's see, Belarus, which is a Russian ally, so I wouldn't count on them. But you have Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia, Romania, across the across the water you have Finland, you have Sweden, you have France that's directly underneath. Why isn't France sending in the French Foreign Legion? They're not French, they're a foreign legion. They're not tied to France. Why don't you that the whole reason the French Foreign Legion was even developed was so that they can send people to fight conflicts that aren't associated with France. The French Foreign Legion has been in Africa for the last 25 years. They've been fighting wars longer than America. They've been in combat since before America went to Afghanistan and Iraq. They're still there now. Why not send them in there? They're on your continent. 
So I know I said I wasn't going to get, you know, political or get, you know, the whole, get into the geopolitical intricacies or the, the empathetic or, or the, you know, emotional aspect of it. But that's how I look at it is if you need to take care of your own continent, we can provide you with as much support as we can without laying down the lives of our people. But, you know, all of the mistakes that are being made, it doesn't add up. Like, and I know we talked about this before, Eric, like if these guys, if Russia really like absolutely wanted Ukraine, it would have been done within 48 to 72 hours. There's a lot to unpack. I mean, think, I mean, mean, dude, three days, three days tops. Are you telling me if you didn't use the same exact, um, the same exact type of coordinated attacks that you used in World War II, which is what these tactics are from, you wouldn't have that country gone. Like they were coming from Germany to sending V1 and V2 rockets over the English Channel. Hundreds of these rockets a day just coming yeah. right in, no like non discriminatory fire, just coming in, killing civilians. Yeah, they just just leveling the city. They could do that. That's not a problem. So I'm I'm not trying to say that Russia is holding back, but they are absolutely holding back. If they wanted to scorched earth Ukraine and claim it and just plant a flag in the ground, they absolutely could. Yeah. So there's a lot to unpack, and I want to I want to segue back to Poland. Yeah. So Poland is is on the western border of mm-hmm. the Ukraine. I, I, there's oh, people say the Ukraine. I say the Ukraine, but I know it's yeah. Anyway, I say but, the Ukrainian people. Yes. But then I say Ukraine. They're on is the a western country. border yeah. now. Poland has taken in a lot of refugees, and so I think that what Poland has done in terms of the humanitarian crisis that has developed, they have certainly done a great job of extending the rolling out the red carpet and and trying to help the Ukrainians. So that is an honorable position, and that's a way for Poland to help without actually militarily getting directly involved. So kudos for the Polish people. Many Polish people who have taken uh, Ukrainian refugees into their homes. And that is very humbling and very heartwarming. And, you know, the emotional side that, yes, it is amazing that there are good humans out there that are doing right by people who are afraid and scared and don't know what if they're going to have a country a week or two from now. So that is awesome. Um, now, I want to before we I do want to talk about Russia's technology a little bit before may, you do that. May I, may right. I, may I say something? But I want what we're still on the propaganda talk. I want to, there's something I want to mention about this that maybe this um, has not been fully appreciated. All right. And I want to talk a little bit about Elon Musk for a minute. Okay. So, you know, Elon Musk has Starlink. And if you're not familiar with what Starlink is, and I swear this is related, mm-hmm. it's related in a way that maybe even, I don't know, people way smarter than me might not have considered this. Okay, look, let's just let's just throw this out there. So Elon Musk has Starlink. And, you know, early on in the conflict, uh, anytime there's a war, right, what are some of the things that the invading country wants to try to do? They want to be able to cut power. They want to be able to cut communications and cut the Internet. Uh, They want to cut utilities. They want to make it really hard for the people that are living there to want to continue fighting on. It's just a legitimate tactic for, you know, the more uncomfortable you can make them, you know, and the more ways you can do that then the greater the chance that they may surrender because life has just gotten so uncomfortable, dare I say unlivable, right? So what does Starlink accomplish? Elon Musk is a lot smarter than people think he is. Well, actually, uh, people know Elon is smart. It's pretty but smart. But what has Elon also effectively done, right? There are millions of people in the Ukraine that need to communicate with their loved ones, and the authorities need to be able to communicate what's going on in the outside world and to keep the lines of communication open, right? And in warfare, information is a very important thing. Starlink, i.e. Elon Musk, sent a whole bunch of his Starlink machines to the Ukraine so they could establish. uh, And, of course, he went through all the effort to ensure that the satellite network that was needed was established. If you don't know how Starlink works, it's satellite Internet, but it's Internet you can get anywhere in the world because the positions of the he put so many satellites in the air. The plan is long term. You'll be able to get global internet no matter where you are. So if you have your cell phone and you wind up in California versus Georgia, which is halfway across, all the way across the country for me, I can still have internet wherever I happen to be because a star, Starlink is always going to be, uh, have some position where I'm at. So what Elon Musk has essentially done right now, this is getting a little geopolitical, but it is related to the tactics, the military tactics of this war. By Elon allowing the Ukrainians to have unfettered access to 
each other and to the world, the the world can know the story in real time of what is going on. So militarily, it puts the Ukraine in a very great situation to be able to appeal to world powers, to be able to share some of the terrible things that are going on and keep the world more connected to their struggle. And that militarily has so much value. Now, the fiscal value of that and the strategic value that Elon has placed into this situation, he's a very smart businessman, because think about it. If the Ukraine, if they repel the Russian invaders and they become, you know, for all intents and purposes, they become the West. They become what Russia fears, right? A member of NATO, a part of Europe, right? They become Europeans pretty much, right? Well, Ukrainians are not exactly poor people, okay? Like, their mean income, like, they're actually pretty well off overall. Like, their quality of living is pretty decent, right? The standard of living so is pretty, pretty what high. what has Elon Musk also fiscally accomplished in that, that kindness? He's done a kindness to the people of the Ukraine. He's done a kindness to keeping people connected to how bad this war is going. But what has he also done? He has created... He's basically taken a customer base, and he's, he's made customers for life. So if the Ukraine comes out of this smelling like a rose and repels the invaders, who do you think they're going to trust their Internet access to? And who do you think they're going to use uh, when it comes down to uh, Internet service provider? They're going, to, they're going to use Starlink, who came and saved the day. Now, I'm not going to say that what Elon didn't do was out of the goodness of his heart. Of course it was, because I think that Elon Musk has a great personal level of responsibility that he feels towards mankind. Well, he did the same thing in Florida when like when natural yes. disaster said he like extended the the vehicles like he automatically he upgraded them for free so yes. that they could go longer with the charges. Well, he, I mean, there is right. kindness in his heart. He understands that. There is. You know, he's but there's sent- that fiscal thing too. He's also yep. accomplishing a business goal and a humanitarian mm-hmm. goal, and I think that it would be unwise to not weigh in the gravity of something like what Elon mm-hmm. did. And I, and a big thanks to Elon for being a good guy. I and mean, you, I think he did the right thing. And you can do both. You now, can, that's the end of the geopolitical part. But yeah, you you <laughs> can mean, be like a, a humanitarian philanthropist and a capitalist. Those two things aren't, you know, mutually exclusive. Meaning you can, you don't have, you, ha, you can't be just one or the other. And I think right. he's done a great job of, of being both within reason. He knows that once the dust yeah. settles, they're going to, they're going to definitely use him for their internet oh, and, for and sure. he's going to win their business over. Well, if, if we're looking at that and back to the Polish thing, I know you said you mentioned Polish or Poland, you know, it's all fine. It's, it, and that's what I'm like. I am such a, a shell game aficionado. Cause I'm looking at this, like it's, it's all a shell game. It's all propaganda because think about it. Poland says, look at us. We're taking in all of these refugees. Great job. You're, you're being great humanitarians. You're taking care of these refugees and you're, you're welcoming them into your country. And now you have these MIGs that Ukraine wants and needs, but you won't give it to them directly because you're scared. That's the thing. That's what, that's what I don't understand. So you have a country, you're willing to give them money to help them fight. You're willing to take in their refugees you know, to help them. And that's not a declaration of war on your part, but providing MIGs to Ukraine that they need, that's just a step too far. You need American pilots or an American help to deliver these MIGs. You're bordering. You could literally truck them. You could truck them right in there. Just put them on a flatbed and truck them in or fly them in there. You're both pilots are familiar with that. Soviet era weapon system, um, though, and that's why I don't understand. There's so much out there that these countries are willing to do to help humanitarian wise, but they're not willing to help militarily because for some reason they think one a step in one direction is is too much. They're going to get you know hammered for it but you're already in it that's what i understand all of these countries that border russia you're next if you think that it stops at ukraine it doesn't the military ramifications of that situation i'm gonna i'm gonna articulate in the the best way i understand it but i will say this so poland was one of the first to suffer the blitzkrieg tactics of germany during world war ii so they know what being invaded is like they know how quickly things can go south so the humanitarian thing I think they're doing some soul searching and understanding, well, we've been through this, so let's help our neighbors. And that's what, that's a neighborly thing to do, right? Now, on these MiG 29s, 
I think one of the reasons that the MiG-29 deal didn't go through, and I'm and I'm just going to tell you the truth here, right? This is just me talking, guys. Look, the reason is because probably the level of training of the pilots, they don't, ha- they don't possess the training needed to use them. But it's even beyond that. Say that you had thousands of willing pilots that had the training and knew how to pilot MiG-29s and knew how to use them. They, we don't have – we, not we, but – Ukraine, Ukrainians do not have air superiority, and that's why Zelensky, the president of the Ukraine, has been so adamant about pressuring NATO to establish a no-fly zone over Ukraine because they know that if they put birds in the air, they're going to get shot down. Now, that's one thing the Russians do have over the Ukraines right now is at least the ability to um, fire anti-aircraft weapons at aircraft. Now, the Ukrainians are shooting down Russian aircraft, but I think the overall consensus, at least what Zelensky probably thinks and probably can verifiably witness, is that if they put a bunch of MiGs in the air, granted, it's great to have air, airplanes in the air, but they stand a very high chance of getting shot down when used in a combat environment in the areas that are most tightly contested. I think that's the concern, and I would be willing to bet if I was a betting man that the reason that deal fell through is because they realized that they'd be shooting fish in a barrel, and that's why Zelensky has been so adamant about establishing a no-fly zone. And but you know if if they had the that's my take. But and, I mean it, it, that's a solid uh, it's a solid uh, guess. <laughs> so um, it is just a guess. I mean that's my opinion. I would I would think that if they had the ability troop movement wise for them for those infantry men and women to go to those SAM sites and eliminate them, it might be. Uh, easier for them to establish air superiority, which brings up the other fact of, do they have like a regular military? Is everything at the, and we're not really getting too much information about that. We see some videos, we see some anti-tank shots, we see some anti-hind shots of them shooting down hind helicopters and taking out like tank columns and BMP columns with, uh, you know, whatever anti-tank weapons they're using. But do they have an actual ground force that is able to maneuver to these sites and take them out? That's, that I am not seeing. I'm seeing a lot of sporadic guerrilla warfare. I'm seeing a lot of like, you know, you know, single shot Freddies, as they say, they pop up, they shoot and they run, you know, they, they displace. Which we know is, that, don't we? Yeah, which is exactly how you fight an insurgent warfare when you're being occupied. Um, I just don't know if they have the means to continue the fight like in a in a line unit versus line unit battle cuz it doesn't look like they have any organized line units everything is is like civilians with Molotov co- like it's all great you see the videos there are Fair. you know whole villages you know having little parties like filling up you know Molotov cocktails you see them sticking the styrofoam in the in the gas to make napalm and stuff like that but you don't see any actual military like then you don't see like formations units none of that you see guys like you know taking pictures with you know the black heart the black uh what is it black beard flag and forward observations patches like oh that's cool guy stuff but where's the actual army at i haven't seen it so this is probably an important part of the conversation to maybe pose a few very distinctive questions that we need to be able to answer and for this part Maybe let's segue down to the south end of the map and let's look at the Crimea uh, Peninsula and have a look at what's going on here. And so we see that the Russians have a front here on the south side of the country and they're making some advancements. And uh, Odessa is definitely on, you know, on the plate right now, because if if they can block off every bit of coastline, not only is there offshore oil that they most certainly want to drill off the Crimean Peninsula, right? So that so economically, there's a reason that they want to be able to block them off so that they can drill oil, obviously natural resources, but Odessa is certainly standing in the way. So they're wanting to cut off the south, but if you look at the troop movements here, there's also something very distinctive you're looking at. All right, so if we zoom in here along this this waterway, this this river that runs up Ukraine, uh, at one point, they had built these like crazy, um, I guess, waterways, if you will, to actually bring fresh, clean water to the, the to the Crimean Peninsula, mm-hmm. right down here. Um, and 
Of course, at one point, the Ukrainians were like, yeah, screw that, and they shut that water off. So the issue with occupying this peninsula is that they have to have that that very essential, precious resource, right? Right. Water. Water. So you see that they're advancing. They probably want to be able to open that water way back up and get the water back down to this peninsula to make life, in mm-hmm. terms of occupying this area, easier militarily. That's well, one thing to consider. Well, that and look at – like so the whole Crimea thing – like just so we're all on the same page, it's a very interesting situation. So, and and I've done some research on Crimea because this happened in 2014, like the whole annexation. Like, so some people say, well, you know, it, it, how come nobody made a big deal out of the uh, annexation of Crimea? Well, first of all, and this is all just you know, you can take it with a grain of salt. They voted on that, and it was 95 percent voting for annexation to russia now you could say oh that was just you know it's a rigged election and all that but you know when they start interviewing the local population of crimea it make it starts to make more sense of why they voted that way and it was crimea was a it was a playground for oligarchs it was on the sea it was it was really when russia when ukraine was part of russia or ussr it was their only real outlet to a good seaside resort area. So you had the ocean, you had the beaches, you had you know, good property. It was the, the playground for the rich at the time. And when Ukraine you know, got their sovereignty in 1990, what was it 1990 actually, they, the people that lived there and the businesses that, li- that were open, they stopped making money. Because they didn't have that Russian oligarch money for people coming in and having a great holiday and spending money. It turned into a dry hole. Sure. And then they voted for Russia to take them, to to annex to Russia. And then immediately what happened is the oligarchs dumped tens of millions of dollars into Crimea to make it nice again. So you had all this industrial, like, you know, you know, buildings, hotels going up, all that good stuff. So I get it. Some people don't understand the fact of why Crimea was annexed. I think it was just going in because they wanted it. No, it's because the people voted for it and they're, they're revitalizing the area. Let's backtrack a little bit. Yep. One thing I want, uh, a question I wanted to pose earlier, when we move to the south end of the map here, there's one question that we, we asked ourselves earlier that we need to probably pose here. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that is, okay. That in light of all this, this situation, we have to look at the tech that Russia is employing. Yep. That is of a concern, I believe, that people need to really think about. I mean, they're sending in T-72s, mm. outdated BMPs. I mean, you've got conscripts with older weapons, not the most modern we- uh, Russian tech in terms of small arms. Um, a lot of the launchers and RPGs, all of the weapons they're using, some are Older. Now we also see uh, that situation where they sent in the paratroopers into the airport, right, to capture the airport. And you ended up seeing uh, photos on Twitter that were being shared of captured Russian weaponry. All right. And then you've got like Ventura sniper rifles with (laughs) uh, night vision optics and some of the more modern stuff. So it's kind of weird. Like, all right, we, we see now this could be propaganda. Russia's already lost three or four generals and higher ranking uh, yeah. people in warfare. One for sure. One for there sure. There are a lot of, um, you know, modern and older weapons being captured. So it's like, all right, well, you're sending some of the guys in with the latest Ventura sniper rifle. You're sending some people in with the, you know, bottom of the barrel stuff. And then most of the, the, the armor that's getting blown up or captured or abandoned seems to be Russian T-72s and what, what many of us would consider to be very outdated tech, mm-hmm. especially if you're fighting a modern war uh, against a, a very well-equipped – I mean, obviously, this, the foe that Russia is fighting is very well-equipped and very motivated and are putting up, I think, a fight that the Russians were not expecting – I feel like what Russia was thinking, well, let's just load up as many people in T-72s and roll across the border as possible and make a scary appearance, right? I mean, imagine you're in your city minding your own business and all of a sudden over the uh, horizon comes 
a a literal steel wall coming towards you. Now that oh, has to be crazy scary. Ivan, you know? I think that they were expecting the Ukrainians to just give up, and when their Ukrainians are actually putting up one heck of a fight, they realize, holy crap! So the question we have to pose is, where are the modern? Where's the modern equipment? Where's yeah. the Where's the T nineties, the T ninety twos? Where's the modern Russian tanks? Where is all the modern Russian equipment? Yeah. Where's all the, I mean, you see a lot of the older stuff. You're not seeing any of their, you know, fifth gen fighters. You're not seeing any of their bombers. You're not seeing any of their T90s or T92s. Right. You're not seeing any of their guys come out with like full kit. I mean, from the pictures that we saw, we see like, I mean, I mean, comparable. They're looking like Iraqi army conscripts, man. They got like web gear, no body armor. These guys are like. Like it, it, it blows me away. I, I, and I think that might come from, you know, maybe that it goes back to us being in combat for the last 20 years, what we're used to seeing and experiencing and what they're used to doing is their last conflict was, you know, outside of like, you know, annexing certain parts was World War II. That was That's their, right. that was their last experience, you know, in real combat, like force on force, like, you know, line unit A versus line unit B, we need to search and destroy. We need to occupy this village to move to the next. They haven't seen warfare since that. And they're they're trying to fight this war like it's, you know, World War II. Well, and here's part of it, too. You look at the U.S. Uh, involvement and and the Iraq war, like, you know, we went in and you look at how fast the United States military was able to, uh, beat back Saddam's troops and that, and that surge, right? I mean, hundred hours. Yeah. It didn't take <laughs> long. Right. So I almost feel like Putin felt like, well, let's just roll in like the Americans did and they'll just give up. Maybe in the back of his mind, it really was just that simple. Cause let's face it, right? You have to think about the, the caliber of person that you're dealing with. Now, look, this is not geopolitical. I'm just looking at this militarily. That is the guise of this entire podcast today. We want to look at this from both sides of of the conflict to kind of know what we're dealing with. Putin, former KGB, you know, um, very smart individual. He's obviously not an idiot. And here's the thing, too. Putin is also getting older, right? So he's probably getting into this sort of sentimental feeling of, well, I want to leave my mark on the world. I want to leave my mark on Russia. So... As a person, as a human being, at the end of the day, he's probably thinking, well, you know, I have to do something before it gets too late to, to feel like I've left my mark on, on this world. And let's face it, at the end of the day, um, that's how human beings are wired. You know, like we, we want to leave something behind. We want to leave behind a legacy. And I feel like Putin wants to leave behind what he views as a legacy. I don't say I agree with what is happening right now. I don't want to get into the ge geopolitical. What I mean is I don't want to choose a side. I don't want to say one side is morally right or morally wrong because at the end of the day both sides feel that they're morally right and what they're doing is correct so i don't want to paint it with that brush but to understand the type of person you're dealing with putin is not an idiot right but when you look at what happened in 39 in finland i mean it's kind of hard to believe that they didn't learn from that mistake and it certainly has the appearance when you look at the map the routes they're taken, uh, the losses that are being exacted towards the Russians, it would have the appearance that they didn't learn their lesson uh, from from World War II. Uh, it would have that appearance. Now, is that that they want us to believe that that they want the Ukrainians to believe that they've that they've committed so much to this and lost so much that the Ukrainians think, all right, we're going to mount some counteroffensive now. Uh, the Ukrainians get bold and say, yeah, we can beat them. And they go out in the open and get out of their, in, you know, cities where they're entrenched and really ready to put up this fight. And then all of a sudden, actually, the Russians have much more up their sleeve than we thought. You know, they go, you know, I don't know, 30 miles from the city and they realize that there's T-90s and T-92s mm -hmm. and there's 40-year-old Russian paratroopers that are ready to make havoc. We don't – so – we we know what we know, but we only know what we think we know, mm -hmm. and we can only we can only surmise what we think each side is doing, right? That's the nature of the confusion of warfare and the fog of combat. We want to think we know what is happening, but there could be some greater plan in place. And what I'm saying is, we shouldn't underestimate Putin and what he's capable of. And this situation is it has the perception of going so badly at the moment that you want to think that there's some greater plan in place that we're not privy to, like he's going to come and swoop in at the last minute and, and, and really do the checkmate, mm -hmm. but it doesn't have that appearance. That reminds me of uh, that movie, Glory. 
with uh, Morgan Freeman, Matthew Broderick about mm-hmm. uh, Sumter, uh, Fort Sumter. How basically what you just explained is very similar. They thought they 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 attacked the fort and they made it past that first line of defense, and they're like all happy and they're running into the to the fort with the flag, and they come around that corner. And those boys are waiting for them with the cannons, and they're just sitting there waiting for them to come around that corner, and they all get smoked. So that is very similar. You would think like maybe the Ukrainians, they're trying to bait them into a counteroffensive. Maybe they're trying to bait them into, hey, we've got them on their heels. We're going to push into Russia. And when they do that, they're like surprised, and right. they just whoom. are they waiting for the Ukrainians to make a very terrible mistake? Are they baiting them to make a mistake? Mm-hmm. I and look, this is not geopolitical for me in this particular part of this discussion. But militarily, as long as the Ukrainians can stay, let's say, equipped by Western powers with good weapons, and especially if Ukraine can get a no-fly zone, which of course. The geopolitical climate that exists within that would be very, very complicated because Putin has already claimed, hey, you know, if anybody gets directly involved, look, a no-fly zone means, all right, if NATO establishes a no-fly zone, what that means is, is that Russian aircraft operating in the Ukraine will be shot down by NATO forces, which obviously Putin is going to view that as an act of war. One very distinctive thing that we have not discussed, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on, is that Russia is a nuclear power. All right, they do have nuclear weapons. Many of them are uh, the class of nuclear weapon that can cause a very tremendous amount of destruction that the world has never seen. Hiroshima and Nagasaki would pale in comparison to the destruction that modern nuclear weapons can impart on civilian populace. Another thing that we have to worry about and what Putin has sort of hinted towards and many people. Now, this could be, let's just say, a propaganda type approach. But one thing that has been sort of put out there as a potential tactic is also gas attacks, which they have hinted at, you know, the the, the fear. I'm sure Zelensky has a very, very well-founded fear that the Ru- the Russians could potentially use chemical weapons against the capital, Kiev, uh, in order to lessen the, the amount of losses on Russian military troops that are trying to occupy the capital. That's a very scary prospect. So nuclear as well as um, you know gas and chemical weapons, those are two very distinctive possibilities that the West and NATO allies have to, to, to really take into consideration. So I believe that's why they've been very hesitant to actually set up a no-fly zone. But those are the two things that the Ukrainians need to continue uh, their offense against their invaders, they need rush. They need they need weapons that are capable of taking out armor and keep that flow of weapons coming from the west. And they need a no-fly zone. If they established those two things and did it in a way that Russia would not retaliate with chemical weapons or nuclear weapons, which both of those would be very bad for the entire world, not just the mm-hmm. Ukraine. Uh, they could actually stand a chance to not only win this war, but but maybe actually even take some territory if they really wanted gonna, to. They could even yeah. push into Russia. Maybe. They're, they're going to get. Uh, hopefully, they. Uh, they, I mean, they don't they need to get, get cocky. They yeah. need to. They well, need to hold the, hold their their border. If, if I may, Eric, I'm just going to point out the hypocrisy in some of this, and I feel like you know it's our duty to do so. And one of the one of the hypocritical actions would be that you know Turkey has been you know, a, a partner of Ukraine providing them with drones. And you mentioned gas, and I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, everybody's saying, you know, praising Turkey for providing them with uh, drones that are helping to attack armor and helping to, you know, help the Ukrainian people fight back. Those are the same drones they used to do mass genocide on the Armenian people that were in their own country, as well as gas attacks. So, this is like the whole hypocrisy and is like, how can we say, oh, thank you, Turkey, for providing these, you know, weapons to Ukraine, but also you tested them yeah. on, on killing Armenian it's people in your own country. Like the Turkish just hate Russia more than the Ukraine. Yeah, the friend of my friend, or what is it? The f- yeah. friend of my enemy is my friend. What's well, what we Or would, the enemy what? of my, and you, come on, man, the thing, you know, the thing. <laughs> the thing <laughs> it's a proxy war so yeah. in, in this whole global you know geopolitical climate it's what we would call a proxy war the so enemy of my enemy is my friend got it that's correct <laughs> so if the russians are fighting the ukrainians and 
whatever superpower in the world hates the Russians more than the Ukrainians, well, then obviously they're going to arm the Ukrainians to fight the Russians. So why send a soldier from your country to go fight against the people that you, you very much hate as a group of people, right, when the Ukrainians will do it? Now, look, again, this isn't geopolitical. I'm not choosing sides. I'm trying to explain the thought process for why these things are happening and from a military perspective, from someone yeah. who, I mean, look, I'm not a military expert in every stretch of the imagination, but we have been involved in it at least enough to articulate some of these points in ways that might make sense and maybe open up some people's eyes in ways they might not have considered. Okay. So yeah. I think we covered things fairly well overall. I know there's some other, th- oh, and also, all right, in the, in the, uh, Russia has used chemical weapons against their enemies in the past. Oh, for sure. So now, Russia has never dropped nukes on people that we know of or whatever, now, other than testing and things. But they have used chemical war, 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 chemical weapons in the past. They have used drones and things. So, yes, it is scary to know that not only are they technologically capable of using chemical weapons, but that they have used them in the past. So that sort of paints that picture that you have to assume that if NATO did get involved and establish a no-fly zone uh, over... Uh, the Ukraine, the country of the Ukraine, uh, that Re- Russia would retaliate either A, with chemical weapons against the Ukraine, or worse, nuclear weapons against Europe or whatever military target they choose to attack. That's so pretty scary. It is. And, you know, just to point out more of the hypocrisy and just to be very blunt with everybody that's watching and listening, I. I'm indifferent about this. I don't have, I'm not choosing a side because I don't really care. I think that's their, their war. That is their war to fight. And, you know, if they come out on top, great. If we can uh, provide uh, assistance in helping them, you know, we're, we're bound to do so. We, we have a treaty. It's the Budapest Memorandum and it was signed in, I think, let me see, 1994. So, they became sovereign in 1990. We signed uh, the Budapest Memorandum in 94, and it was America uh, of all countries. Russia is even breaking their own treaty. But we made a we made you know assurances that we would help them out because they're a new country. They just became their own country. They're still working out all the in- intricacies of it, and we are failing to do that now. Now is that you know do I care about that? Not really, but. If we look at all the hypocrisies going on in the current war, every country that signed this memorandum is also not holding up their end of the bargain. Not to mention the hypocrisies that our own government is is committing towards us directly. I mean, well, our own government isn't exactly uh, going too swimmingly right now. Yeah. And they look, have their own house to this, keep this is, And that's one of the issues. So if we look at, you know, what else is there? What else is going on? So we have the Budapest Memorandum. So we've we've obviously failed to uphold that end. Why are they not a member of NATO? They applied for NATO uh, to be included in NATO. They became a country in 1990. They applied to become a, a NATO country. They had to give up their nukes. That's why the Budapest Memorandum exists because Ukraine said, if we're giving up our nukes that we inherited from the USSR when they separated from the USSR, they kept the nukes that were part that were in that country. So I think it was like 1,600 nukes. It was, a, it was a really high number of nuclear missiles. They gave those up and they said, hey, if we give these up, we need protection. So the Budapest Memorandum happened. They're supposed to get protection for that. They didn't get into NATO. Yeah. Why? Those are the real questions we should be answering because every single country that is around them is a NATO country. Yeah. Latvia, Estonia, Poland, all the countries that surround them are NATO countries except for Ukraine. And then you have, you know, them paying, you know, the president's son uh, a million dollars a month or something like that to sit on a board of an energy company in Ukraine. So you, when you start connecting the dots, like, it okay. Stinks. Yes, it stinks terribly, which is why I'm indifferent about this whole thing. So, yeah, so the ultimate question we have to pose is, why is the Ukraine, why are the Ukrainians not a member of NATO? Why does Russia continue to be on the UN Security Council? Why, why doesn't the UN? They're boot, in the boot security. They're in the security meetings That's talking about the the Ukrainian offensive. Like I'm they're saying. literally sitting in right. the meetings. So why why is Russia still part of the UN Security Council? Why isn't Ukraine member of NATO? 
where are Russia's modern armor? Yeah. Right. So there is another part of this that we haven't had a chance to discuss. I just want to quickly hit on it is that the Ukraine also has very modern nuclear energy. So that, that's why you're able to see power still in a lot of a, a, a huge portion of Ukrainian cities still have power because they're on uh, nuclear. And obviously what we're seeing is maybe not the first time, but one of the first times, especially in modern history, modern times, where a power has attacked another power who is a nuclear energy dependent power. So you don't just roll up and blow up the nuclear power plants because obviously that can be very ugly, not only bad for the populace, but bad for the people that live there and, yep. and just bad in general, you right? You can't control the wind. Yeah, you, you know, can't control good. where it's all the, you, you know. But now, granted, all of these new modern nuclear power plants are much more efficient and safe than Chernobyl was. Mm -hmm. Chernobyl had some very distinctive flaws that caused what happened to happen, right? Yep. So did Fukushima. So did Fukushima. But th if a modern nuclear power plant failed uh, in any way, it would be closer to what happened with, at Fukushima rather than than Chernobyl. Than Chernobyl. Yep. But people think, when they think nuclear energy, they think, oh, Chernobyl, in yep. their head, they see that elephant's foot in the basement, and they go, see, that could be us. Chernobyl. Leaking or... into the water supply, p potentially. Now, they did enclose the elephant's foot and that whole mass into a giant sarcophagus, which, as far as I know, has has kept uh, these nuclear wastes and nasty crap from you know getting into the water and to, into, to the uh, you know soil and everything like that. However, at the end of the day, all right, how do we know that the Russians aren't planning on trying to... I mean, they did attack a power plant, or at yeah. least a building adjacent to the power plant. I think that was just them missing. <laughs> uh, right, but I believe it was a building near the power plant, but not the yeah. physical nuclear yeah, power it plant Yeah, it was a building that was part of the complex. Right, so but they didn't would, attack the power plant. Right. I mean, that now, would be I will tell, Yeah, it would be. And I would tell you that the, the modern nuclear power plant, the reactors are extremely well protected. I've seen like slow-mo video of how they test this and they literally take, no joke, a telephone pole, an entire wooden telephone pole, and they launch it at the little protective dome and they launch it at like... I forget the speed, but it's ridiculous. This is a ridiculous, it's like a, a catapult system off of a carrier that's like throwing this thing at this missile of wood. Wow. And the slow-mo video just shows that telephone pole hitting the reactor shielding and it just splinters and it vaporizes. So they're very well protected. Um, now, does that mean they're going to take a direct hit from like a, a 500 or a thousand pound bomb? Probably not, but it, it will hold up to most stuff. That's right. So we do have to wrap up today's podcast, but I just want to make mention of something really quick before we wrap up. I know that we didn't cover every little thing. There's always going to be some stuff that's easy to leave out or forget about. So let's continue the conversation in the comment section down below. Yes. Uh, let us know what you think. We'd love to hear your opinions. Today is March 17th, 2022. And that is the information we have today. The, these are our opinions that reflect today. Right. These are our opinions as of March 17th, as we sit here in this room right now. Uh, this is a continuously developing situation. And I just want to say before we leave today, my personal opinion here, just very quickly, that the loss of human life is terrible. Uh, I, I feel, you know, very much some difficulty in my heart towards, you know, what the Ukrainian citizens are going through, as well as the Russians, right? Look, I can remove myself from this situation and understand that at the end of the day, those Russians that are dying over there are young people that have fi families, right? They have a mother, they have a father, they have brothers and sisters, they have friends, they have people that love them. And at the end of the day, I'm not saying that I, that I, that I want Russia to win. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying either way. I'm just saying that it's important to recognize that the toll on human losses have been terrible for both sides. And that I know there are Russians and Ukrainians that watch my channel. And I want you to know that I hope that I presented that Matt and I presented this information in a way that we're not trying to choose sides. We're just trying to lay the facts out militarily and try to make some military sense of what is going on. And I want it known that that is the guise under which I wanted to make today's video and that I feel terrible about the civilian losses uh, the Ukrainians have suffered and the military losses that both sides of this conflict have uh, suffered. And at the end of the day, the soldier on the ground is who loses, right? The, the politicians continue 
consolidating their power and trying to gain more power, right? So at the end of the day, let's look at this as a war of politicians and that the boots on the ground are the ones that suffer at the end of the day. And, and you know, they're all young men and women and they all had a future and they all had people that loved them and cared about them and wanted them to, you know, continue to grow and, and be people. And, and, and it's important to acknowledge that loss, that that is a group of people who, they they will no long, they don't have hopes and dreams anymore they don't they don't know their family anymore they're gone they're dead they're 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 that's it their story's over and it died with this conflict and it's important to recognize that that loss is a human toll that we should not support i agree and you know i'll just give my my thoughts and you know war is horrible it's tragic um you know i'm indifferent about the war between ukraine and and russia i feel for the people of both countries cuz that's who it really hurts the most is the innocent civilians um you know warriors are going to be warriors you know they only know one thing and that's that's to fight and they know the risk you know and that, and that's the the risk that you assume when you do that um you volunteer for it if you're you know i know we have ukrainians and russians that watch the channel and you know Again, I'm not uh, for or against any country. I think you both need to handle your business. We'll stay out of it. And if you're a U.S. politician watching, if you advocate for America to go to war, then you volunteer to lead the battalion into battle. Your don't, kids too. Don't don't send kids to do your work. You do it. Agreed. I don't think there's nothing else we need to say. That's it. I hope everyone has a great week. And look, keep your head on the swivel. Uh, be brave, be fair, be principled, uh, be objective. In every decision you make and everything that you view, view under the lens of objectivity, and I think you'll come out on top. And remember to be be brave and courageous. Have a great week. We have many more podcasts on the way. Again, go over to Ballistic Inc. and pick up, uh, yourself up a snazzy t-shirt. That's one way you can support our efforts if you wish. A big thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. Y'all are amazing. Uh, we will see you next week. Many more videos and podcasts on the way. And uh, be sure to go over on all of the various podcast forums and leave us a great review. That helps us show up in the search results a little bit better. And look, guys and gals, it's going to be okay. I promise. Stay strong. We'll see you next time. Many more on the way. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to Life, Liberty, and Pursuit. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are found. Be sure to leave us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate that. You can support us over on Ballistic Inc. by picking yourself up some merch. And remember, guys, dangerous freedom. Have a good one.